Welcome back, everyone, and thank you for joining us for today's podcast from Dublin First Baptist Church in Dublin, North Carolina. We hope you'll be encouraged today as you listen to our message. For more information, please visit our website at www.dublinfbc.org. That's www.dublinfbc.org. Now let's join the congregation of Dublin First Baptist as we listen to the preaching of God's Word. Will you turn with me to Acts chapter uh, 2 and we're, we'll take a look here at uh, probably one of the most exciting events in the Bible, definitely in the New Testament. The church is built. For the last two weeks, we've seen the continuing work of Jesus Christ by his Holy Spirit through followers of Jesus. The church was born uh, at the beginning of chapter 2 as the Holy Spirit came down and indwelt those who had trusted in Christ as Savior, those first apostles and disciples. And then last week we looked at the main body of Peter's Pentecost sermon where the church gave out the gospel. And this morning we'll see what happens when the church does that, when we give out the gospel. The church is built. It grows. There's multiplication. People come to trust in Christ as their Savior. They grow uh, in their relationship with Him. So the assignment that Jesus gave us that was at the end of chapter 1 there, right before His ascension, uh, the Great Commission, it successfully occurs. When the gospel is given by the church, when the Holy Spirit is involved, we make disciples of Jesus Christ. Before we study this, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we ask that your Holy Spirit, present here in the lives of every person who's trusted in Christ as Savior, present here among us, if if there's one who hasn't, who's going to be calling them to trust in Christ and to be born again, we pray that he would illuminate the truth of this word to us. God, teach us what it is you want us to know as your church. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we see the response to the gospel, verses 37 to 41. For the past two weeks, we've studied together Peter's Pentecost sermon, and I kind of halted right before uh, verse 37 here. Uh, it would probably actually be good for us to read verse 36. Let's do that. It says, Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made that same Jesus whom you have crucified, both Lord and Christ. So there's the end uh, of Peter's sermon, uh, at least the main body of it. And... Um, We would expect him, like we usually do here, to wrap things up now with an invitation, encouraging uh, the congregation to respond to the word of God just preached. But something pretty amazing happens instead. Uh, We'll read in verse 37 that the congregation interrupts and asks for guidance from Peter and the rest of the apostles for how they should respond. Verse 37, now when they heard this, they were pricked in their heart, and they said unto Peter and to the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? Now I've been preaching here every Sunday for a little over three years, before that in the youth department on Sunday evenings or Wednesdays. I I have uh, been preaching at our former church in Fayetteville in the uh, teaching in the Sunday uh, school for the adults there for over 10 years. I have been preached at for Uh, well over 44 years, Um, and I've never experienced this, where the congregation um, basically gives the invitation uh, themselves. An audible response, request for how to respond. Now, I would pray that anytime the Word of God is given out by me or anyone else, um, that there is Holy Spirit-driven internal questions like this, Uh, that's what goes on in my heart whenever I'm convicted by the Word of God that's given out. But this is unusual. Uh, The congregation vocally asks, in response to the gospel given, what shall we do? 
And I believe there's so much uh, desperation and, and emotion uh, in those words, in that question. Uh, the gospel always has to include getting people to understand their sinful state. I mean, otherwise, why would they need a Savior? They have to understand who they are apart from Christ. Uh, and Peter hasn't simply told them that, that they were sinners. In verse 36, he had told them that they had murdered their Savior. <laughs> they had murdered the promised Messiah. So no wonder their response to the gospel is, what shall we do? And Peter's going to answer this question in verse 37 for them and for us here this morning. It's important that we realize that there is a do from our side of the salvation experience. There is something we must do to be saved. It doesn't just happen. Jesus told us what we must do. In John chapter 6, the crowd asked him, what must we do to do the works of God? And Jesus replied, the work of God is this, to believe in the one whom he has sent. So to believe in the person of Christ, the work of Christ for you on your behalf, that's Peter's answer. Look at verse 38. He says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. So that, that's our due. What's the response to the gospel that's given here? What must we do to be saved? First of all, there's got to be belief. We see that at the beginning of verse 38. Peter says, repent. Now you might be thinking, well, I thought God's word said we just had to believe to be saved. Yeah, I mean, Peter might as well have said believe here because whenever God's word talks about saving faith in Jesus Christ, those two things are always included. Repent and believe. That's how we're saved. Not two steps, um, not two different things. It's like a coin, two different sides of the same coin of saving faith. Repent and believe. I mean, that was the message of John the Baptist in preparing people for, for Jesus' first advent. Uh, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's Jesus, the first sermon he ever preached. It began like this, Matthew 4, 17, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And it's the first word, first response of the gospel message here. What are we to do? We're to repent. In Greek, it's metanoeo. I'm sorry, metanoeo. It means a change of heart, a change of heart that results in a change of direction. So that's why I say, it's why God's word says that um, the concept of belief always includes repentance. Um, I mean, yes, it's, it's believing something in your mind, but so much more. It's not simply an assent to some facts. It's not only a head knowledge, but it's a change of heart knowledge, a change of heart desire that results in a change of direction. Peter says repent. And one more thing before we move on in verse 38 Please never think of repentance as something you must do before you come to God. That's not how it's ever portrayed in God's word. Uh, repent and believe describes what coming back to God is. That's what it means to repent. That means that Peter's answer for them and for us here this morning, repent, it is a, a word of such incredible hope. It means that you don't have to continue the way you've been going you can turn around. <laughs> you can turn to God. Now, um, this next phrase has caused more problems <laughs> by people twisting it out of context or uh, oftentimes surgically removing it from the entire rest of God's word when it comes to salvation. Peter says, and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus for the remission of sins. So Peter answers this, what shall we do question with repent, and then this? So belief is necessary. Uh, 
And the crowd's response is also, they're told to be baptized. I mentioned last week that a fellow came by here a few weeks back. He wanted to argue. He was presenting false teaching about the Trinity, that it didn't exist. And he also argued um, that baptism was necessary. It was essential for salvation. He went right to this verse. He said, see, you have to be baptized in order to be saved. Well, Scripture doesn't teach that. Uh, while a simple reading of this single verse, and that's what he was doing, um, it may seem like that's the case. Over and over again, in multiple places throughout the Word of God, we've already mentioned one there in John 6, and what Jesus said, we are told in God's Word that we are saved by God's grace alone, through faith alone, and Jesus Christ alone. Amen? Amen? That's how we are saved. And can I give you three reasons why this verse is, is definitely not teaching that being baptized is necessary for salvation? The first, of, first of all, that, that three-letter word, that little word, for, here. It says, be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus for the remission of sins. And the Greek word ice, especially when it's used in the accusative case like it is here, it means on account of. Or, or based on. So let's read that verse this way. And be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus on account of or based on the remission of sins. Well, that's significant. No? Yeah. Because that just coincides with what every other scripture passage teaches about how we are saved. That it's by God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. It also coincides with what every other scripture passage teaches us about why we should be baptized as a public proclamation that we have been saved. A declaration of what's already happened in our lives. Now, secondly, while it's not written this way uh, in English, um, the translation from the Greek text, uh, this, this response about baptism here is, is actually a parenthetical phrase. We know that by the case of the pronouns. Uh, Peter's answer to the question, what shall we do, is repent. And we could think like, Put parentheses around that for the remission of sins. Uh, the wor the um, words in between, repent for the remission of sins, the words in between there about baptism are important, but repent is a plural verb, and the phrase for the remission of sins is also plural. And so the baptism part, it's in the singular. It's important. Peter's not saying it's not, but Peter's also not saying that it's ne necessary for salvation. Just repent and believe. That's what saving faith is. And then finally, we mentioned this before, but the entire rest of the gospel, every place it's given in God's word, stipulates that it's whosoever believeth. Amen? John 3, 16. Whosoever believeth. doesn't say whosoever is baptized. It says whosoever believeth in him will be saved, will have eternal life and shall not perish. Um, but I took this man, right, to the scene at Calvary. And you have Jesus, and there's a thief on each side. And at some point, that one, he stopped cursing and mocking Jesus Christ. And he turned to Christ, didn't he? And what did Jesus tell him? Today, today you will be with me in paradise. And that man's hands were nailed to a cross. They couldn't do anything for Jesus. His feet were nailed to a cross. He couldn't go anywhere for Jesus. He was saved by God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. He could not be baptized. Is baptism important? Yeah. That's why we're Dublin First Baptist Church. That's why we assemble together for worship under this name. That is why we have this tank behind me. That's why I'm so excited that in two weeks we're going to have a baptismal service. Yes, it's important. It's important because God commands it here. And Peter's answer to the crowd's what shall we do question is repent so that you can be saved, but also be baptized because you have been saved. 
And Peter says, every one of you. So if you have been saved, there ought to be this public identification with Christ and a declaration that you are following him. No, it's not necessary for your salvation, but it is presented here as, at least as the, the first step in your public obedience in your new life in Christ. So why wouldn't you? That thief on the cross, definite evidence that it's not necessary for our salvation. But we need to think about the flip side too. It's also uh, evidence, and it's a pretty high bar set, um, that you, you better have a fairly substantial reason for why you can't or why you won't follow Christ in this matter. There's one more phrase here in verse 38, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. That happens when you repent and believe. Um, we are baptized in the Holy Spirit at that moment. We're born again. We're regenerated. And, and that is why we should be baptized in water as God commands us to uh, here. Water baptism, not the cause. It's the effect of our salvation. It should be. We're actually given three components of conversion in this verse. Not salvation, but three components of conversion. We are saved by one thing, one thing only. God's grace to us in Jesus Christ. And the first component of our conversion is repent and believe. That's how we tap into God's grace. It's God's grace alone that saves us, but we tap into God's grace by repenting and believing. And then secondly, there's baptism. That's how we testify about what's happened, about our conversion. And third, there's transformation. Peter says, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. We're going to see this transformation in action in just a moment. But now look at verse 39. Peter tells the crowd here, for this promise, it's to you, it's to your children, it's to all that are far off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. What promise? Oh, yes, salvation through faith in God's grace to us in Jesus, that's a promise. But here specifically, the promise is of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. The promise, that's what he has been called. That was the name for the Holy Spirit so far in Acts. In Acts chapter 1, 4, Jesus called him the promise. Back in verse 33 of the same chapter, the Holy Spirit's referred to as the promise. And so Peter tells them that if they will repent and believe, they will be indwelt by the Holy Spirit, just as all of the apostles they're watching are, all the other disciples of Christ who have been doing these signs and wonders. And then verse 40 does describe Peter giving an invitation to his sermon. It says, in many other words, he did testify and exhort, saying, save yourselves from this untoward generation. So is there a response to the gospel here? Look at the beginning of verse 41. It says, then they that gladly received his word were baptized. Did they repent and believe? Yeah, what a great description. Those who gladly received his word. They were saved right then and there by gladly receiving the gospel. Then what did they do? It says that they were baptized. Boy, they didn't waste a whole lot of time, did they? Uh, right then and there, they were baptized. The temple uh, where all of this went down, it made that possible. It was surrounded by purification pools. Uh, they were there because the Gentiles who uh, were proselytes and were coming to Jerusalem for the Feast of Pentecost to be uh, converted to Judaism, they would have to be baptized as part of the conversion process to becoming a Jew. Instead, they get saved and they get baptized and become followers of Jesus Christ. What an amazing thing. Before we move on, please notice who was baptized. It says, they that gladly received his word. So those who repented and believed the gospel. There are Christians, I have friends who love the Lord and I'll see them in heaven one day. 
um, who are what we might call theologically paedo-baptists. They baptized infants. And then there are Christians like us here at Dublin First Baptist who are credo-baptists. We believe God's Word teaches that you are to baptize believers. We see that right here. Who was baptized? They who gladly received God's Word. So I need to make it clear that in this instance and everywhere else in the New Testament, when it talks about baptism, there's only one example and one instruction that's given throughout for who should be baptized. And it's always they that gladly received God's word. The Bible's model is believer's baptism. Enough said on that. Let's move on. The results of the gospel, verses 41 to 47. Look, there is commitment. The church is built here. Look at the rest of verse 41. And the same day, there were added unto them about 3,000 souls. That is just incredible. And one day, after one sermon, the church goes from about 120 to over 3,000. Is there power when the Holy Spirit is involved? There's power. Uh, Who did this adding? Who did it? Was Peter like the greatest preacher ever up to Billy Graham? Who did this adding? Who built the church? Jesus did. Just like everything we're going to read about in the book of Acts. This is the continuing work of Jesus Christ by his Holy Spirit through his followers. And I hope, like me, boy, I long to experience this. I love reading about it, but I wish I could have seen it in person. I wish I could see it today. Um, It's definitely not the norm, even at that time. We don't see this happening again in the book of Acts, not to this level. Um, It has happened, something like this, from time to time throughout church history. But for it to happen, God's got to be involved. And the church has got to be doing what Jesus commanded, giving out the gospel, making disciples. If that doesn't happen, this kind of thing won't ever happen. And please don't forget what preceded this amazing response and result. 120 followers of Jesus were in frequent, fervent prayer together. Is there power in prayer? There is, not because prayer is powerful, because the one it's directed to is almighty and omnipotent. They were also unified. They were in one accord together, unified in their identity in Christ and unified in the mission he had just given them, committed. What kind of commitment results from those who are transformed by the gospel? What kind of commitment comes from believing and baptized followers of Jesus? Look at verse 42. It says, they continued steadfastly. And the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in breaking bread and in, it's actually, and in the prayers. There's an article there. So appointed times to come together to pray together. That's what they continued steadfastly in. There's a commitment to coming together and studying God's word. There was a commitment to coming together for fellowship and worship. There was a commitment. As I was studying this this past week, I couldn't help but have this question come to my mind, so I present it to you this morning. Is it possible that we don't see the kind of gospel response that we read about in verse 41 because those who have responded to the gospel already were not living with the same level of commitment? That's described in verses 42 to 47. There's other things that are pulling at us that are demanding our time and resources, Verses 43 to 44, they continue with the description of the commitment to Christ and to the church that these early Christians displayed. Let's read verse 43. And fear came upon every soul. Many wonders and signs were done by the apostles. And all that believed, they were together. And they had all things in common. There wasn't just commitment. There was incredible compassion. That's what we read about. They're all together, committed to Christ, committed to the church, committed to each other in compassion. And these verses are often used to give biblical support to the 
economic or social ideology of socialism. Um, once again, that can only happen by twisting them or resting them out of the rest of God's word. Because what is described here is temporary. It's not going on forever. It's also voluntary. That's a big thing to consider. These new converts to Christianity, though, they needed to stay in Jerusalem. They had just come there for the Feast of Pentecost, and they were going to go back home. They had just learned about Jesus Christ. They needed to continue steadfastly with a commitment in all of those things verse 42 described so that they could learn about their new life in Christ, become discipled. They could learn what it means to follow him. They had come to Jerusalem as Jews to celebrate Pentecost, and this turned into an extended time away from home. So what we're going to read about in verses 45 to 47, it was necessary in order to meet the needs of those that were there until they could return home. Look at verse 45. They sold their possessions and goods, and they parted them to all men, as every man had need. And they, continuing daily with one accord, there it is again, in the temple, and breaking bread from house to house, they did eat their meat with gladness and singleness of heart. And they're praising God and having favor with all people. And the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. Isn't it a remarkable display of commitment and compassion that's on display there? I mean, their commitment to Christ and to his church and to each other, it's vividly seen in what they did. And their acts of compassion by their love, like we sang about earlier. And their, their commitment to Christ impacted their wallets, <laughs> their possessions. As verse 46 says, they, they didn't do this because they were constrained. They did this with gladness. They were excited to do it in singleness of heart. That's how they came together. That's how they worshiped together. It's not just how they came to church. It's how they were the church and meeting each other's needs with gladness and singleness of heart. In verse 47, the church continued to be built with the testimony of these early Christians, one of commitment and compassion. God is telling us here that when people respond to the gospel by believing, when the Holy Spirit comes to indwell them, a transformation happens. They become committed and compassionate in a way that they weren't before they trusted Christ as Savior. Jesus and their fellow believers become way more important to them than their possessions. Unbelievers take notice of that. It's such an effective evangelism tool, such an effective disciple-making tool, because it screams, what I have is real. (laughs) It's changed me. They were known, just like we sang. They were known by the love that they had for each other. When unbelievers look at our commitment and compassion and come to the same realization that we've been changed, because we're doing it with gladness, singleness of heart. Early church father Tertullian, he uh, documented that unbelievers would look at this kind of thing and they would say, look at how they love each other. Because that kind of love (laughs) was so rare. Had to come from somewhere else. Had to come through the power of someone else. That's what Jesus said to his disciples in the upper room right before he went to the cross. John 13, 34 to 36, Jesus says, a new command I give to you, love one another. Was that a new command? God told us to love each other before, right? We got the entire Old Testament (laughs) up to that point. We're to love each other. He says, I'm giving you a new command. How is it new? It's definitely new in intensity because the next phrase of Jesus is, as I have loved you. And we could say, as I'm about to love you. That's how you are to love one another. 
And that's how everyone will know. That's what verse 36 says. Jesus said, by this, everyone will know that you're my disciples. If you love one another. There's nothing wrong with a Bible verse on your social media bio or a little fish on the back of your car. But this is how people will know. They'll know that we've been transformed by Jesus Christ. Have you believed? Peter started this sermon by saying, uh, whosoever will call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And he identifies that Lord as Jesus Christ. Has there ever been a time when you, in prayer to God, have confessed your sins to him and trusted in Jesus as Savior? Have you repented and believed in who Jesus is and what he has done for you to save you from your sin and give you eternal life? If not, do that this morning. And Christian, you who have done this, have you ever followed him in, in believer's baptism? Look, if not, and the Holy Spirit's moving you to do that, I can sign you up. We've got the perfect time. And if that don't work for you, I'll fill the tank up the Sunday before or the Sunday after. It's important. Jesus himself was baptized. Why would we want, not want to identify with the one uh, who has done so much for us, who has transformed our lives? And Christian, uh, are you repenting even today? Because that's the life of a follower of Jesus Christ. It's one of continued repentance. Anytime the Holy Spirit convicts me of some remaining sinful area in my life that needs to be surrendered to Christ, Pastor Paul Washer said, you want assurance about your security in Jesus Christ? The best evidence that there was a point when you repented and believed is that you continue to do so to an even greater degree right now. Jesus follower, is your life one of commitment to Christ? and to his church, and want a compassion, especially toward other believers. Maybe like the crowd here, the Holy Spirit has convicted you this morning of some area in your life where commitment to Christ has waned a little. Other things or other demands displacing your commitment to him or your compassion for those who are his. Well, do what God says to do here. Repent. That is the great hope of the gospel, <laughs> that I don't have to keep going that direction. There can be a change of heart that the Holy Spirit can work in me. And then there can be a change in direction if we will repent. As Tommy comes and leads us in a closing hymn, a time to respond, it always is. However, the Holy Spirit's used the word of God to call you to respond today. I just ask that you'd obey.